Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is part two for those of you who are gluttons for punishment. Uh, just to review what we talked about this morning, okay, positive economics, I basically tried to give a very clean, simple introduction to what it is, a way of modeling how people make decisions given scarce resources. I argue that it doesn't by itself okay, tell us which policies are good or bad because you have to also take a stand on values before you can necessarily make a decision that some policies are good or bad. Um, and there's no economics by itself doesn't say one set of values is right or one set of values is wrong. Positive economics lets us see the pros and cons, the effects of making different policy choices. Um, and so the contribution is to give us data, is to act like sort of science and tell us what's going to happen under alternative policies. So now I want to ask which interventions or whether interventions are better or worse than markets. So now I want to mainly talk about normative economics, about what are good policies and which are not. So I want to talk about that relative to various possible goals. And the three we mentioned briefly at the end of last time were avoiding infringements of individual rights, so promoting liberty, standard libertarian objective, uh, generating maximum consumption per capita, or making the economy as efficient as possible or as productive as possible. Any of those ways of describing the middle uh, goal would be equivalent or achieving what somebody has decided is a quote unquote fair distribution of income, which for shorthand I'll refer to as equity uh, with clarification at places where it's necessary. Okay, and I think you can of course give other possible objectives, but those three capture the bulk of the debate. So I want to argue four different points, some much more controversial than others. Okay? First, that maximizing efficiency and maximizing liberty imply the same policies. I'm not even really going to go into that one. I'm going to sort of take that as obvious. As you think of liberty as many libertarians do, most do, as I do, the Greta Garbo definition, we just want to be left alone, okay, then okay, it's almost tautological if you don't have any policies that interfere with individual choices, no mandates, no subsidies, no taxes, no rules, no regulations, et cetera, et cetera, well, then, of course, you're just leaving people alone to choose their occupation, where they're going to live, how they're going to run their businesses, whom they're going to hire, whether their kids go to school or not, and so on and so forth. Okay? Second point okay, is that markets, okay, not government, market slash liberty, do the best job of maximizing efficiency, of giving you the biggest possible economics pie. And I don't think that should be that controversial. I think that, in fact, a lot of economists who seem like they're pretty lefty interventionists actually sort of agree that markets work a lot better than governments, but they have other reasons why they tend to argue against markets in some instances. Okay? But I want to show explicitly, or more explicitly at least, exactly why markets do a better job than government at creating the maximum possible size of pie. Then finally, okay, I want to talk about equity. And I want to recognize that in some circumstances, there may be a trade-off between some definitions of equity and efficiency. It may be you can't always have your cake and eat it too. Okay, that's going to depend on what your definition of equity is, and it won't be applied to my preferred definition of equity. Okay, but more importantly, but, but there are some cases okay, where that's right, okay, if you have particular views. I still want to argue that overall, for many reasonable definitions of equity or for aspects of equity that we should care about that typically get swept under the table, 
markets are again going to do a much, much better job than government at promoting these reasonable views, these other aspects of equity. So really, along any dimension, markets rather than government are going to do the best job. So we don't actually have to take such a strong stand on what our value system is, because for any of the plausible ones, markets are better. So I'm first going to be slightly nerdy again and talk about a theorem from economics, okay, then much more practical stuff about exactly why government policies okay, tend to cause all sorts of problems, both theory and some evidence. Okay? And then I have to conclude a little bit about something called behavioral economics. A few of you have asked me about it in the coffee breaks. It came up a little bit uh, in the question and answer. It's a new aspect of economics that seems to provide an opening for all sorts of government interventions. And I want to explain why I don't think that is right. And the standard presumptions that I'll talk about earlier uh, still apply. OK, so I'm going to talk about efficiency. We're thinking about that as the goal for the moment. Obviously. Uh, not too many people think efficiency is the only valid goal, but most people think other, increased efficiency is good, other things equal. So clearly that's an important thing to consider first. So the question for the moment is, do markets or government promote the highest consumption per capita, the highest productivity, whatever what you want to call it? And when I say markets, I mean free markets. I mean you know, the US in 1790 to a sort of rough approximation. Frequently, you have this one-liner People ask me how much government I get rid of. And I say, oh, I just want to eliminate everything adopted since the 90s. I got this sort of puzzled look. And then I say, yeah, the 1790s. So, <laughs> um, but even in 1790, we'd already done a few stupid things. But okay, still, it was pretty good. So there's just none of the standard apparatus of government that we're all unfortunately familiar with. OK, so we need to first, in terms of talking about free markets and efficiency, talk about something called the first welfare theorem. This is a result proved sort of decades and decades ago that says competitive markets, for the moment you can think of that as equivalent to free markets, are Pareto efficient. What does Pareto efficient mean? It says that you can't make anybody better off by rearranging policy, by rearranging resources, by changing the rules or anything without also making somebody worse off. So there are no mutually beneficial trades or exchanges or alternative arrangements left to be made when you've gotten to a Pareto efficient outcome. Okay? And that's one measure of efficiency, which basically implies all the other kinds of efficiency uh, that we would like to care about. Now, this is a theorem. Okay? So theorems have assumptions. Okay? So you shouldn't think that this theorem is God's truth. It's not like Planck's constant or pi or something. It just says, if certain conditions apply, then letting market competition reign and not interfering with it will get you a certain beneficial aspect of economic outcomes. It will get you an efficient outcome in the Pareto sense. Okay? So the theorem has assumptions. But nevertheless, those assumptions don't always seem totally wrong, totally at odds with reality. So it would seem to provide a first case or a base case for free markets. That is one way that free market economists, some libertarians, have argued for free markets by, is by appealing to this theorem. Basically, this theorem says markets do things perfectly, so interfering couldn't possibly do anything except make things worse. Okay. It's really important to note that this theorem takes no stand on distribution, because the Pareto efficiency concept ignores whatever the initial distribution of stuff was. So if we had an economy in which Mitt Romney had everything, and the rest of us each had a penny, that's a Pareto efficient allocation. Why? Because the only way to make any one of us better off is to take something away from Mitt Romney, which makes him worse off. Okay? 
if we started with an allocation which everybody had exactly the same amount of stuff. Okay, that would be Pareto efficient because we couldn't make one person better off with about eight. So the theorem is in some ways very limited. It's totally silent on the distribution of wealth or the distribution of income. We'll come back to that in a minute. So you might come to this question, are markets better than government, from this theorem and say, well, this theorem told us that markets are good. End of story. I think that's not really quite the right way to think about it. Okay? So the theorem has strong assumptions. It assumes a way that there are any externalities in the production or consumption of any goods. An externality is an effect that one person's activities have on somebody else's production or consumption activities in ways that are not mediated through markets. Okay? It's important to say they're not mediated through markets. If I wake up one morning and decide I like rum raisin ice cream, that will raise the demand, raise the price, harm people who already liked rum raisin ice cream. That's not an externality because it's mediated through the price of rum raisin ice cream. By externalities, we mean things like pollution. If a manufacturing plant dumps a toxic waste in a river, dumps it on somebody else's land, puts noxious fumes into the air that cause people to have asthma or things like that, that's an externality. And in the real world, of course, there are some externalities, some quite significant. The theorem assumes that away and ignores those. The theorem assumes away monopoly. It assumes every industry has lots of small atomistic firms all making basically homogeneous goods that none of whom can have any effect on the price. There's no issues of you know, brand differentiation or monopoly or information problems or anything like that. So of course the, the conditions of the theorem do not literally apply in practice. Second, if we take the distributional, the equity side of free markets. My Mitt Romney example says that there's plenty of people who would object to just letting the market determine everything because they say, well, maybe the market will do things efficiently given the initial distribution, but some people were lucky and were born with great genes or born owning a lot of land or born having the right skin color or the right religion or whatever, but that's not fair, that's not equitable, okay? And so just the fact that you're getting efficiency is not enough. Okay? So that's another reason that people don't necessarily endorse markets over government. So why exactly should we choose markets? Okay. So I want to talk about a consequentialist case for markets over government. That just says markets are imperfect, totally granted. Some are really imperfect. Some are just you know, mildly imperfect. But so are interventions. It takes an incredibly sort of narrow Ivy Tower academic to think that the right comparison is between okay, the theoretically pure market and the, uh, the, sorry, the, the real world markets and the theoretically pure intervention, of course, all interventions, all rules, regulations, taxes, subsidies, mandates, have some negative consequences of their own. They don't work perfectly. They're enforced by imperfect people who have their own agendas in many cases. So the right question is always not which is perfect or not. The right question is which is less bad. Okay, we should all agree. We could all agree markets suck. Okay? Government sucks more. Okay? And that is the consequentialist case in a nutshell. Now, I haven't proven that to you yet, but that's the nature of the argument. We have to compare the alternatives that we actually have, imperfect markets and imperfect uh, government, not theoretically pure versions of one or the other. So I want to argue that the interventions on practical grounds are in fact worse uh, with respect to efficiency, liberty, equity. Okay, so how can we do that? One way I could do that is I could go through every possible policy we currently have okay, and explain all of its negatives. We obviously don't have time for that. Okay? What I want to do instead is to highlight a set of negatives that in my analysis occur consistently across a large range of interventions and that which interventions by their nature are inevitably going to have. 
I'm not going to quite say that every single possible government policy has every one of these different categories of negatives, but most of them have many of them. So it just creates this incredible presumption okay, that these policies are probably not making things better off because almost all policies have several, if not most, of these particular categories of negatives. Okay, so the first one, simplest one, taxation. Almost any intervention you can think of requires expenditure, and therefore it requires taxation. Now you might say, or some opponent might say, well, but you could have a mandate. You could just mandate that everybody gets by health care. That doesn't take any expenditure. Well, that's clearly wrong, because if you just mandate it and don't do anything to enforce it, lots of people will ignore it. So you have to spend money enforcing it. You have to provide subsidies for people who can't easily afford the health care that you've mandated that they purchase. So all policies require expenditure, means you need taxation. Taxes distort economic efficiency. Taxes artificially change the relative prices of different things in the economy in a way that gets people to respond to the taxes rather than the underlying costs and benefits. Tax a particular good, you make it more expensive relative to other goods, so people substitute. If you tax the income of businesses, uh, they base their decisions based on minimizing taxes rather than on maximizing profits or producing good products. Okay? All taxes have huge compliance costs. That's a deadweight loss. Uh, on the economy. So first obvious cost of every government intervention is taxation. And existing estimates suggest that at the level of taxation we're currently imposing, because of the level of expenditure we're currently imposing, those compliance costs and those distortionary costs are large. Okay, they're not trivial. They're really a significant aspect uh, of why we should try to reduce expenditure, other things equal. Even for expenditure, which seems to make a lot of sense on almost every ground, still you should think of the cost of a dollar of expenditure it's probably being about $1.25 or $1.50 because of the distortions that the taxes cause when you impose them to raise the revenue. Second crucial negative of a huge range of policies is they prevent Pareto improving exchanges. They prevent people from just voluntarily deciding to engage in some type of activity where they sell one thing and buy one thing, or they uh, get higher and sell labor services, all sorts of other interactions. So again, that's the definition of Pareto improving. The standard economic presumption, which we're going to come back to a little bit later, is that voluntary exchange is that voluntary exchange is Pareto improving. Otherwise, it would not occur. People know what they're doing when they make those decisions. That's taking a stand on their having some kind of rationality. Okay? And so, if we prevent a Pareto improving exchange, if we interfere with voluntary exchange, we're reducing economic efficiency. Now, a crucial thing about this is that it means interventions are not zero sum. There's a strong tendency, depending on who's arguing which side of which issue, to try to pretend that somehow it's just a question of who's paying the bill, and therefore we can th just think about fairness, rather than recognizing that something additional is lost. We are shrinking the pie when we interfere with Pareto uh, efficient exchange, when we interfere with voluntary exchanges. So there's lots and lots of, of examples. Okay. One example would be Social Security. Okay. To economists, to thoughtful economists, the big problem is we're spending a lot, we have to raise a lot of taxation, and taxation generates distortions. The expenditure also generates distortions on its own and encourages people to retire too early, in effect. Okay. So one thing you could do is say, well, we're going to raise taxes, okay, and then we'll have more revenue to pay out to pay the benefits under Social Security. And some people want to think of that as that's just a question of redistribution because some people will pay more taxes 
okay, and therefore we'll be able to pay the benefits. But raising those taxes is going to distort economic decisions, so it's not only going to shift who pays for the current Social Security liabilities, it's going to make it harder overall for the economy to pay for the liabilities because it's going to shrink the pie. Same would be true of any entitlement program. It's not only transferring money. Because of the transfers, people, if, if they create incentives, that gives people reasons to alter their behavior in ways that shrink the economic pie. Okay, so that, again, implies that policy faces trade-offs. Okay, you can think of it as efficiency versus equity if you believe okay, the equity claims behind those particular transfers. But again, we'll come back to that later. So now let's think about examples. Okay? Vice prohibitions. Okay? People make all sorts of arguments as to why we should outlaw drugs, prostitution, gambling, pornography, and so on. The first order fact about all those things is the people who are being punished by those laws will voluntarily engaging in those trades. The buyer of the drugs wanted to buy the drugs. The seller of the drug wanted to sell the drugs. Okay? So they both perceived they were getting some benefit, that they were better off. So those prohibitions are interfering with mutually beneficial exchange. Okay? OSHA regulation. Okay? Under OSHA regulation, you cannot go to a company and say, look, I know that this job you're advertising is incredibly dangerous, dangling up at the top of some tall bridge and fixing the girders up there. But if you'll pay me a wage of X, okay, I'm happy to do it and take the risk. I'll even sign away. You know, I'll indemnify you against any liability. You don't have to insure yourself against the fat possibility I might die or be injured in doing this job. If you give me this wage, then I'm happy to do that job. You can't do that under OSHA regulation in tons and tons of cases. OSHA says you cannot have employees do certain dangerous jobs or you have to make them do them in certain heavily regulated ways. It won't let there just be private arrangements, private deals between employers and employees about accepting the amount of danger or not. Okay, so it's, again, interfering with mutually beneficial exchanges. Collective bargaining laws are, of course, preventing okay, companies and employees from voluntarily agreeing okay, to certain wages. It's trying to, they're forcing okay, one side of that party, the company, to bargain in good faith with the unions okay, rather than simply letting there be mutually beneficial decisions about exactly what the wages and hours are. Price controls is obviously another example. You're preventing someone who wants to sell a good at a high price uh, to someone who's willing to buy it at a high price. Government is saying, no, you can't do that. You have to keep the price lower, in which case there's going to be excess demand at rationing. Antitrust laws are preventing two companies that want to merge with each other from deciding they want to merge with each other, preventing mutually beneficial exchange. Okay, same for gun controls. Um, something else, else was supposed to be on the right. Oh, there it is. Okay. Barriers to entry, okay, same kind of effects. Child labor law is another good example. Okay, if the parents of a 12-year-old, okay, want that 12-year-old to scoop ice cream for five hours a week at the local ice cream store, okay, can't do it because the law says no one under the age of 14, okay, can have certain types of occupation. It doesn't matter whether the kid wants to do it and the parents wants to do it, the law interferes with that mutually beneficial contract. Campaign finance regulation. Someone wants to give me $8 million to get me to run for president. They can't do it under the campaign finance laws, subject to all sorts of regulation. Again, that is mutually beneficial exchange that's being interfered with. Compulsory education, zoning laws, and on and on and on. Okay? So backing up just half a second. The fundamental reason, thing that many, many policies are trying to do is to prevent people from doing things that they wanted to do on their own, that they mutually wanted to agree to do. That should create, in your mind, a really, really high bar for those policies. Okay? If they're 
several people who want to do this, they're losing out by virtue of the government policy that interferes with it. So you have to have a really compelling argument that there's some other good that's being accomplished okay, by interfering with mutually beneficial exchange. And that is the essence of the inefficiencies that are created by government policies. They're preventing people from doing things that would make them better off in their views. Now, a different view along the, again, the issue of whether markets do things better than government okay, is the following. In, at least in textbook economics, you, of course, can argue that no market is really perfect. And you can construct an argument that would say okay, that, well, since it's not perfect, maybe if we did just a little teeny bit of a nudge, a small intervention in this market, it would move things in the right direction. Okay? Now, that makes some assumptions. Okay? It assumes that we have benevolent and competent policymakers who can correctly sort of create this small intervention. It ignores slippery slope, you know, it ignores unintended effects and so on. Leave that aside for the moment. Okay? For it, take as an example, sort of clean air rules. There's no doubt that some of the noxious fumes that manufacturing plants, cars, et cetera, were putting into the air, they had the potential to reduce human health. There was certainly perfectly good motivation to want to think about reducing the amount of air pollution or water pollution that was being generated before uh, the 1970s. Okay? So the standard kind of interventionist argument from economists would be there's really no market that's perfect. We can always make things a little better by trying to fix those imperfections. And there's a little bit of truth, okay? There's a little teeny gem of truth, okay, to that observations. But the interventions never stay small, okay? If we were talking about a teeny little gas tax, okay, to reduce congestion on the highways, or a teeny little gas tax uh, in response to global warming, okay, or very small interventions to sort of help kids be informed about, you know, working too much under child labor laws or something, you might say, okay, it can't do much harm. As an example, think about the labeling requirements on food. Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 just said every company has to put as a label on its food and medicine what's in that bottle or can or whatever. That sounds sort of innocuous, right? I mean, how bad could that be? First of all, libertarians would argue consumers, if they care about it, they'll demand it in the marketplace, and the marketplace will provide it. But probably a lot of consumers do want to know what's in their food. And so you're just nudging companies a little bit to make sure that they put that information on the labels. They can't have done much harm. Except the Pure Food and Drug Act evolved over time into the FDA and drug prohibition and a whole host of incredibly interventionist policies. It didn't stay at this teeny little minor gentle nudge of intervention. It got bigger and bigger. And that makes total sense. Why? Because any entity, individuals, firms, nonprofits, government, they all want to survive. How do you survive? Well, in many instances, you survive by getting bigger. So you expand your mission, you uh, let your, there be mission creep, and so on and so forth. Okay, so the initial in intervention, which may have been well-intentioned, which may even as a very small intervention been you know, beneficial, it's never going to stay the way it was originally intended. And that's a reason to never start on that, on, on many of those interventions in the first place. Um, okay, let me skip that in the interest of time. So, some more examples. Okay. The Civil Rights Act okay, initially said you can't discriminate in employment and other things against African Americans. Of course, it's been expanded okay, many times. It now, for example, mandates that colleges okay, have to spend the same amount on women's sports as men's sports. Okay? So, what might have seemed like a reasonable intervention initially okay, has now grown way beyond its initial purposes. The Pure Food and Drug Act we just talked about. Social Security is a good example. 
1935, the age of eligibility for Social Security was created as being 65. What was life expectancy in 1935? 63. Okay. So it was insurance against living too long, against outliving your earnings potential. Now, you can still think of plenty of reasons to object to Social Security, okay, but as originally intended, it was not an evil purpose, the idea of providing some protection to people who were old and unable to earn a living on their own, okay, was something which society might have valued, even if it would have been better to have left it to private, you know, private sources. But still, it wasn't necessarily evil in its intention. But now, Social Security, because we've kept the age of, of eligibility at 65, is providing a generous retirement for many, many years, in some cases, many decades, for huge fractions of the population. So the amounts of expenditure, the amounts of distortion are way larger than they were originally. So a somewhat well-intentioned, small, you know, not very distorting program has become a hugely important uh, and distorting program. Same deal with Medicare. Antitrust was initially created Okay, simply to go after sort of super big evil monopolies. There may have been some cases where it was sort of justified, okay, although even those are disputed by a lot of economists, but it's also expanded enormously to go after not just mergers that almost certainly would tend to create a monopoly situation, but also all sorts of day-to-day -day practices of companies like trying to prevent Microsoft from incorporating a spell checker into Word because that was going to be anti-competitive. That was the basis of the government's case against Microsoft. Okay? It sounds loony now, but that was what antitrust creeped into because they needed more stuff to do. Okay? Education, of course, has expanded sort of beyond all recognition. Lots of people, even perhaps some hardcore libertarians, might say, yeah, I think if the government subsidizes, set aside how it actually does the subsidy, but it's subsidizing to make sure every kid can go to K through three elementary school. That's probably not so evil. You know, the, the potential negatives from that are not bad. Almost every kid should go to that much school and so on and so forth. But what are we doing now? We're subsidizing zillions of 20-somethings at government expense to study medieval literature in state universities. Okay? What's, what's the social purpose of that? But, and, but that's where we ended up because of the bracket creep, of the mission creep uh, of government policies. Economic regulation, you get the same things. Another good example is infrastructure. So maybe it made sense for government to build the interstate highway system in the 50s. But we built it. It's there. And of course, there's some parts of it that are crawling apart and need repair. But if you listen to Obama, he will tell you that we need all this extra stimulus because we need all this infrastructure. And then you look at the projects that are being funded with transportation stimulus dollars. And there are crazy projects like high-speed rail between Tampa and St. Petersburg. There's the big dig in Boston, which consumed $15 billion and made traffic much worse for, for 20 years. They, there are beautification projects alongside all these highways that are just make work for unions and construction companies. So even with things which kind of make some sense, and maybe there's a government role, they almost always expand too much. Okay. So argued sort of basic reasons why free markets are better okay, than governments with respect to efficiency. Talk about free markets and liberty okay, for a second. That's obviously not controversial. Okay? And there's pretty much general agreement that markets will maximize liberty as most libertarians define it as not being interfered with. So I'm not going to say much more about that. On efficiency, on liberty, markets, in my judgment, clearly win. So what I've said so far, okay, we've talked about 
the ways that interventions can reduce efficiency, the obvious ways, some, to some degree the standard ways that people make those arguments. But I want to also argue that there are a lot more subtle harms of intervention that are important, okay, but that are, are hard to measure or hard to put into models, but that we really should recognize and talk about. Okay, so first is creating dishonesty or disrespect for the law. Government and policies are, enforcement is imperfect. Government can never make sure everybody obeys. Okay? So that means that people who voluntarily obey the law they are going to lose out relative to people okay, who don't. People who say, well, it's illegal to smoke dope, so I'm not going to smoke dope, they're punished compared to the people who say, yeah, I'm not going to get caught, so I'm going to go ahead and smoke dope. People who are honest okay, suffer relative to people who are dishonest. Politicians okay, who say, I'm not supposed to accept campaign contributions except in these very restricted ways, so that's what I'm going to do. They're punished relative to politicians who push the envelope in legal and quasi-legal ways okay, because um, they're willing to be dishonest. So we're going to create dishonesty, incentivize dishonesty, incentivize disrespect for the law. People who break the rules, people who don't break the rules, but they still all observe that basically laws are for suckers when we have this broad range of policies that's weakly enforced. And that's clearly bad for society's norms, for a self-enforced, for a society in which people respect the rule of law and want to obey it voluntarily. Um, and so we don't want policy to foster the attitude that rules are made to be broken. So a few examples. Vice prohibitions are an obvious one that I just, just mentioned briefly. Okay? Speed limits and other traffic rules. Okay? Now, a lot of people, you know, here I'm a libertarian, they say, you're not one of those idiots who thinks that we shouldn't have speed limits. My answer is, well, maybe, okay, but maybe not. Because, there are pl first of all, there are places that don't have speed limits, that don't seem to have any more accidents than places that do have speed limits. If you have those limits, lots of people are going to violate them. I mean, you could have a limit that said the maximum safe speed. And then if someone is driving in a way which is unsafe for conditions at that day and time, then they can get a ticket. But there's no just default 65. So if you have the ones that we have most places now, you get a lot of people who break the rules. And then somehow the danger is that spills over into their attitudes toward other rules that we would like them to obey. Uh, safety and health regulation. Okay. I guarantee you, you do not want to look at the back of most restaurants, okay, the kitchen. You'll see things that will, you know, make your hair curl, okay, but almost none of the people who go to those restaurants get sick. Why? Because those restaurants sort of do enough stuff, like cook the food, make it hot, that kills almost anything that could grow in it, okay? So the restaurants that, you know, voluntarily spend a lot of effort complying with this or that don't bother to, you know, don't pay the health inspector off, okay, they get punished relative to the uh, ones that ignore the regulation or pay off the health inspector. Uh, minimum wage laws and rent controls. There's lots of ways to evade rent controls. Okay, there are private deals between renters and landlords, ways to evade minimum wage laws by fudging hours so that you don't, aren't, your employees aren't working enough hours to be subject to the laws. So people who obey them get punished relative to people who are willing to circumvent them. Same thing with affirmative action, all sorts of licensing, permitting, and entry fees. My wife and I happen to employ an unlicensed plumber. We mentioned this to some friends in the neighborhood. And they actually know this guy pretty well because he grew up in the same town. They said, really use him? He's not licensed. I'm like, why should, why should I care if he's licensed? He fixes my, the toilet when it gets broken. He fixes the air conditioning. And, and so he, but he has less business because the law has created this view that you're not supposed to have an unlicensed plumber. This particular plumber also has an interesting characteristic, which is he never sends us a bill. So we're definitely going to keep using him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
still other examples, high tax rates and complicated tax codes are going to get a lot of people to evade and avoid in various ways, punish people who try to report honestly uh, relative to people who are willing to break the law. Campaign finance we talked about a little, uh, same thing. All of that implies this negative effect that probably is bad for society's efficiency, all this evading and avoiding, that's just sort of a waste. Okay? It also creates a huge set of inequities. So the people who want to blather about the distribution of income, about equity usually are talking about the distribution of income, but we should also think about what government policies do to other aspects of equity and creating incentives for dishonesty, creating disrespect for the law, rewarding the people who are most willing to break the rules, that's a terribly inequitable thing to do, okay? but that's exactly what many interventions do. A different example of what policies do that we don't always think about is they polarize society. Lots of interventions try to make everybody do the same thing or behave in the same way. But there's huge heterogeneity in what people think is right or wrong on, on various things. And many of those views are perfectly defensible. I'm not talking about you know, thinking it's OK to murder someone versus not, but uh, all sorts of, sort of less sort of draconian things. If you impose one position on everybody, that forces the people who are being imposed on okay, to either accept that or be uncomfortable or feel that their wishes are not being accepted. And that creates an embittered, polarized society. So examples, abortion. If okay, we had left abortion to the states, if Roe v. Wade had never uh, occurred, okay, and the and the sequel I, abortion would have been left to the states, which was what was happening before Roe was decided, and then there would have been states with very liberal abortion laws, states with somewhat restrictive abortion laws, probably a few states with super restrictive abortion laws, but every single person would have had the ability to live in a state whose abortion laws felt sort of acceptable to them. And maybe lots of people wouldn't bother moving just over the abortion laws, but they'd at least have the knowledge that their views were respected somewhere in the country. Whereas under Roe, we imposed the same policy on every state, and that, as we've witnessed, has generated huge polarization. Uh, another example is pu public schools. We're making everybody accept that their dollars have to go to pay for public schools, except that some of them don't want their kids to go to public schools, they want to send them to parochial school or some other kind of private school, so they have to pay twice. That makes a lot of those people very bitter okay, about uh, government support for schooling. Gay marriage is a similar example, okay, very similar in structure, actually, abortion issue. If okay, the Supreme Court decides that the Constitution okay, requires legalization of gay marriage everywhere, okay, that may have the effect of generating a huge backlash, whereas if it's left state by state, okay, it may not have that policy. So again, Letting different people do different things okay, is going to reduce um, polarization. Obviously, it applies especially to federal policies, but it's true to some degree for, for some state policies. Okay? And it generates an embittered society that's another efficiency and equity negative of all the intervention that we have. Still another category is reduced self-reliance. Okay? Uh, lots of policies send the message that people are too dumb to make reasonable decisions on their own. Okay? Now, undoubtedly, that's true in a few cases, but we can't have policies which protect people with, from themselves without creating an atmosphere of, that says everybody's too dumb to make decisions on their own and therefore to reduce self-reliance and personal responsibility. So a few examples. Laws against false and misleading advertising okay, are clearly saying people can't make reasonable inferences uh, on their own. 
prohibiting certain things because they're too dangerous for people to choose on their own. It's nutritional guidelines that tell you what to eat, uh, regulating decency content, child labor laws, compulsory education. Okay? The list goes on and on. Okay? All of these things say we don't trust individuals to make decisions. That's going to have the effect of encouraging people to not okay, think carefully and make good decisions on their own. Finally, I don't think I can stop talking about the negatives of government without talking about thought control. And I frequently feel awkward when I get to this point because I'm usually facing a crowd that's somewhat libertarian but somewhat not. And the non-libertarians think that you're totally loony if you think that like, having public schools is thought control or is leading the way to Animal Farm in 1984. But I think it's true. And I think it's much more subtle than people let on. Okay? So any intervention, any intervention takes a stand on truth, on what's right about something about the way the world works, about way markets work, et cetera. Now, that's really obvious if we were talking about education. Obviously, if government's running the education system and choosing the curriculum, it's taking a stand on what you should or should not learn. It's deciding that liberal arts is good and vocational tech is not as good. Okay, so that's clearly a form of thought control. The government is funding research and choosing to support stem cell research or not, support research on green energy or not. It's trying to control the ideas, the thoughts, what that go on in society. But any economic regulation is doing the same thing. It's taking a stand about the way markets work or don't, okay? usually without a heck of a lot of evidence. When you tax corporations, you're making a statement that you think people, something other than people pays taxes. Nothing other than people can pay taxes. If you can't shake hand with it, it doesn't pay taxes. But having corporations and having corporate income tax perpetuates that myth, cons a lot of people into thinking that there are these inanimate things that they can tax that's somehow free because they're not people and therefore changes the way society runs. Redistributing income takes a stand on who's responsible for low income versus high income, okay, rather than just saying we're neutral about it. Campaign finance regulation is extreme. It's clearly protecting some kinds of candidates and sometimes of ideas okay, relative to others. So even without explicit thought control, all government is a form of thought control. To give an example, when my daughter was like seven, I said something at the dinner table about not supporting subsidies for education or government schools or something. She said, what? I wouldn't be able to go to school if there weren't for the public school. So I tried to explain to her that, you know, <coughs> Tons of kids that she knew go to private school, that there are lots of ways you could subsidize education without running public schools and so on. But her statement was completely consistent with what happens to lots of people. They just get used to thinking that because it's provided by government, it has to come from government. That is a subtle but really important and negative effect uh, of government. And if you think that there are slippery slopes, that's a huge reason for concern about a huge range of interventions. OK, so again, a little short on time. but. Let's talk about some evidence. This is sort of a cool graph. This is known in the sort of folklore as the great fact. It shows you income per person from 1000 BC okay, to approximately the present. It doesn't quite go up to the present, only to 2000. So what you can see is that income per capita bounces around for close to 2000 years or 1800 years. And then at the start of the Industrial Revolution, when there's much more reliance on markets, when there's much more philosophical and economic writing advocating the virtues of free markets and capitalism, okay, income per capita explodes. And this huge improvement in economic welfare, this was basically for the world or as much of the world for which there, there were data, okay, was utterly unprecedented and took place entirely under the confines of capitalism. And 
for most of that period, fairly free market capitalism, not in the feudal systems, not in the huge amount of regulation government interference that the world had had up to that point. So summarizing so far, markets aren't perfect, okay, but in interventions are worse from the perspective of efficiency and liberty. We haven't talked about it, markets versus government from the perspective of equity, so I now want to turn to that. So there are two kinds of policies we should talk about when we're discussing the distribution of income slash equity. Okay? So one are those that explicitly try to redistribute. Social Security, Medicare, welfare, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, housing subsidies, and on and on. Okay? Then there are a bunch of policies that have some other goal, but also might affect the distribution of income or equity. And that's virtually all of the policies. So look at those in sequence. So the claim that's made by the people who want to redistribute income is that it's fair. Okay? So that just begs the question, what is fair? What does it mean? And who gets to decide? Okay? So obviously, the people who are making the argument think that fair means taking from the rich okay, and giving to the less rich. Okay? Now, it's just an assertion. It's, it's sort of hard to deal with because it's now so widely accepted that it, you seem like you're, you're an ogre if you take a different view, but it's just an assertion. Okay? It has no basis in any theory, in any argument, other than people are jealous. They don't like the fact that some people have higher incomes, and so they want to redistribute it away. Okay? In addition, last, I don't know, decade or two, we've gone a long ways away from saying that we should redistribute to help the poor, which is at least sort of a kind instinct to wanting to soak the rich, which is nothing but sort of a selfish instinct. Okay? So the first problem with the policies aimed at redistribution is they just have no logical defense. It's all assertion, okay? not any sort of science of any kind. Second, whatever your definition of fair is, policies that attempt to redistribute are going to reduce efficiency and reduce liberty. They're going to reduce the liberty of the people whose taxes you're taking uh, income you're taking away in taxes. They're going to reduce efficiency by discouraging the incentives for entrepreneurship and effort and saving and so on. Especially soak the rich policies as opposed to helping the poor policies they are going to do that. So even if you think that this definition of fairness is appropriate and policy should try to pursue it, you should recognize it has a cost. You're going to have a smaller pie okay, at the possible benefit okay, of dividing the pie somewhat differently. But finally, Regardless of your definition of fairness and what you think the impact is on efficiency, it's far from obvious that these redistributionist policies have worked in the sense that their advocates want them to work. So this is actually a graph that I created. The red line is the poverty rate in the US from 62 to almost the present. And the blue line is real per capita anti-poverty spending which means total U.S. federal government spending on Medicare plus Medicaid, Social Security, disability, unemployment insurance, I think one or two small things okay, added in there. Okay? So the fact is there's no correlation. We have been spending more and more and more and more and more on anti-poverty programs, and the poverty rate has basically not changed for roughly 45 years. Okay? That's a pretty abysmal assessment. And we're not talking about teeny increases in per capita poverty spending, we're talking about in real dollars an increase by a factor of six from approximately $1,000 in the mid-60s per person to $6,000 per person okay, in 2008-9, and it's undoubtedly higher than that now. So even if 
you accept the standard redistributionist notion of fairness, take from the rich to give to the poor, okay, even if you don't care about the effects on reducing the size of the pie, you should care that it's not working. It's not doing what it's supposed to do, and so therefore the costs are really serious costs because you're incurring those costs for no benefit. Now what about other policies that are not explicitly aimed at redistribution? Um, Almost all those policies are going to create winners and losers. That's the nature of them. If you impose one kind of regulation, Companies that can easily comply with the regulation win out. Other companies get punished more. If you sort of pay for government uh, housing projects, the companies that win those contracts are going to make a lot of profits. The companies that don't get the contracts are going to lose out. Okay? So there are all sorts of winners and losers. Okay? And these generate arbitrary redistributions. They generate distributions in income, in wealth, that have no basis in merit, in getting more income because you work hard, getting more income because you're a great innovator like Steve Jobs and came up with something interesting. So what are examples? I mentioned government construction projects. Airport security. Okay? They have those stupid scanners in the airports. Okay? After a few years of those, some genius decides, oh, we need a fancier machine that blows the air or takes the picture of you that the, where the image shows up and somebody in some other room someplace, probably in you know, India, has to read the image and report back to the guy with a little walkie-talkie thing on okay? Well, that meant they had to buy a whole new set of machines. Okay, did they have any evidence that the first set of machines wasn't working? No. Did they have any evidence the set of new set of machines was going to work better? No. Okay? But the company that made the new machines, they had a huge incentive to con the government, okay, the TSA, into believing that the machines would be better. They made a fortune. Can you imagine having a guaranteed contract to install and maintain every single one of those airport scanners around the United States or even the world. So by having government be in the airport security business and do it in inefficient and stupid ways, we create arbitrary winners. Okay? That's a redistribution. That's an incredible inequity okay? that has nothing to do with people being rich versus poor. It has nothing to do with wanting to soak the rich. It's an arbitrary and unfair way of generating, of transferring wealth around the country. Clean air rules are going to do the same things because of firms that make scrubbers and uh, which companies can comply most easily. Medicare reimbursements mean that companies that push the envelopes or get rich, companies that don't push the envelope in terms of how they bill, uh, don't. High stakes testing generates all sorts of business for companies that make those tests. So they benefit, they get rich relative to sort of other sectors of the economy because the government is in this business. Just say no. This is your brain on drugs things. Most of you have seen on YouTube or something. Okay. Some PR company, actually a very famous PR company in, uh, in New York, got the contract to do a revised version of that. What is the genius theme that that company came up with? They had this 20-something woman, very attractive woman, extremely attractive woman, okay, with a frying pan. Okay, saying, remember the old, this is your brain on drugs? Well, now this is really your brain on drugs because drugs are much worse or something like that. And she takes this frying pan and goes around the kitchen, like smashing all the plates and stuff like that. So what message does that send? The kids are watching that message that says, gee, if I do drugs, maybe I can have a date with that woman. Didn't keep anybody <laughs> hey, from using drugs. It was comp- but that some company got $200 million of your tax money okay, for creating that ad campaign. That's, you know, 200 million is rounding error on rounding error at this point, but still. Um, state university tuition policies, okay? State universities mainly, okay, have a high, a moderate nominal tuition, 
typically less than the most expensive privates, but say they have 20,000 that's set, okay? And it's the same for everybody. So if you're Mitt Romney, you pay the same rate, okay, as someone who has a much lower income. So lots of middle and upper income families are benefit by sending their kids to the state schools and paying the subsidized tuition rates. That's, again, an arbitrary redistribution. So I'm gonna skip over uh, a few more just because I'm getting a little short on time, but I hope that gives the flavor. Okay, so um, even if your goal, okay, is to flatten the distribution of income, okay, you should accept that such policies have costs, okay, that there's a trade-off between that version of equity and efficiency, and there's very limited evidence for the effectiveness of those policies, so you're really getting all costs and no benefit. If your goal is to avoid policies that avoid rewarding good connections or dishonesty or dumb luck or all the things which are gonna matter a lot when government does all these things in the economy, then that argues really strongly against a huge range of interventions. It's another inequitable implication of interventions over markets. Okay, so let me take a few minutes on behavioral economics. So there have been, over the past 20 years or so, a zillion experiments done by psychologists and economists examining whether people behave the way economic models say they behave. Okay, so simple, simple example. Oh, we talked about this earlier, right? We talked about the ultimatum game. Yes, okay, so that was one example to see whether people do exactly what the models say. They find that they don't behave, do what economic models say. There's lots of these behavioral people as opposed to rational people, okay? So does that mean okay, that stuff I've said is wrong, okay? Or sorry, I should back up a second, okay? That stuff seems to open the door in many cases for paternalism because it seems to show that some people are naive. They don't think through the whole model. They don't think through the whole problem. They're much more influenced by events which will happen in the near future, and they way sort of over-discount and ignore things which will happen a little farther in the future. And so that says we should, for example, they don't save enough for retirement because they only think about the fact that they want the spending now, and they forget about the fact they're going to want to be able to afford things when they're retired 30 or 50 years later. So that seems to say, well, maybe government should do things like forcing people okay, to save for their retirement. Maybe government should intervene in various decisions because they're not rational because they're behavioral. Okay? My view is that this argument, this evidence, supports small government, not big government, okay? because the unintended consequences are going to be even worse when people are behavioral, the unintended consequences of government interventions. So there are lots of examples, but here's one. Under drug prohibition, Okay. The wages you get for working in the drug trade, the cash wages, okay, are very low. The, and as it turns out, the non-monetary wages you get are negative. You risk being shot, going to jail, having your kneecaps broken if you steal from your uh, supplier, and so on and so forth. Okay. But okay, there's cash available. You don't have to go down to McDonald's. You don't have to get any FICA taxes withheld. Okay. You can just get cash easily by working in the drug trade. So what are kids in impoverished neighborhoods going to do? They're going to see that up front, it looks like working in the drug trade is a really good deal if they're behavioral. Okay? And therefore, they're going to be tempted to do that instead of staying in school or instead of getting sort of more serious jobs and things like that. If people were really rational, then those kids should see through that you know, naive calculation. They should realize that the longer run thing to do, the more beneficial thing, would not to be to work in the drug trade, to recognize the risks of getting shot are serious and internalize that. But if people are naive, if they make bad decisions, then all these unintended consequences are really going to affect, OK, 
okay, all these people. And so interventions over and over make things more complicated, make things more difficult to sort out, okay? Think about the estate tax or high taxation on high-income people in general. If you're really smart, all those complicated, messy rules, if you're rational, there's just an opportunity for you to win out relative to everybody else. Why? Because you'll hire an accountant who will help you figure it all out. But people who are, who are naive, who are behavioral, they're going to get really nailed by all those complicated policies because they are not going to think through the details and be able to take advantage of them. So it's important to mention that because it comes up in discussions more and more. The idea that people are sometimes, be, some people are behavioral in some ways some of the time, there's lots of evidence for that. Does it support big government? I don't think so in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so I'm almost done. To summarize, I think there's an excellent case that free markets provoke efficiency and liberty. That's more or less a slam dunk. I think interventions affect the distribution of income routinely, okay, but almost all those effects or all those effects are clearly undesirable, not desirable. The only one that anybody could possibly defend is some amount of redistribution for the poor. Okay? Um, that is not obviously evil, although it probably would be done better okay, by the private sector. The evidence that government attempts to do that have worked okay, are not strong, are not supportive. So there's no particular reason for that as well. And the case for interventions based on behavioral economics, I think, is weak. So to conclude, what I was trying to do in my lectures is give you a sense of how economics relates to libertarianism. We, in fact, use very different words, but we come to exactly the same conclusions. Now, there must be a reason for that. Okay? So I have a fights about this all the time with uh, uh, more philosophically-minded libertarians. I say that all their, their rights and their, you know, uh, rule, their morality things are just shorthands for consequences and that they're really consequentialists too. I so far haven't convinced very many of them of that. But um, there must be something going on that causes us to reach exactly the same conclusions. Okay? I think it's really useful to know the economics language and the economics approach. Okay? It's frequently misused against libertarian. I tried to give you some examples earlier. People say, oh, economics is no good because it assumes everybody's all ra always rational. It assumes everybody cares only about money. That's just not right. Okay? Economics approach is also useful to know okay, because it, I think it helps persuade some people. Many people are persuaded of libertarian views from rights-based philosophical arguments. Some, not as much. Others, I think, are more persuaded by economics arguments. Since they both go in the same direction, you might as well have many arrows in your quiver okay, and use all of the possible arguments. So that's it. Thank you for your interest in libertarianism, and thank you very much for listening. I'm happy to take questions. And since I don't think we have anything after, are we allowed to nudge the time? Half a minute. <laughs> that was a big concession. Yes. Hello. Um, thank you for the speech. It was very interesting. Uh, I have, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I have a, a small, uh, my name is Emmanuel, I come from Paris. Um, my question is regarding child labor you were talking about, being the mother of uh, two, child, two children. I wanted to ask you, um, I consider personally that taking a decision for someone else is it is taking a decision for somebody else, therefore it's not exercising your right. If I choose as a parent to let my child work, then if I decide that my child can do that, then why not vote, why not drink, why not drive? And if I can take that decision for him or her, then why not sell it? I mean, what's the, if the law is there to protect the weaker, I, 
and you consider that the child is weaker since it doesn't vote. It's, it's an individual in becoming like Aristotle used to say. I think there are two different issues going on there. And you decide to let your child work at a whatever age, that's directly affecting you and your child. It is affecting Having your my child. Having child vote is affecting everybody else. So I think that's of something on which people, society will want to make a decision of how it wants to run its democracy and what, at what age it thinks that it's getting better versus worse decisions from its voting by having one voting age versus another voting age. That's not really true because if the child decides for himself, you do, you say as a, a government, I mean, you say as the people that you do consider that the child has the ability to decide that in himself, that he is a grown up in his head, therefore why not vote? I mean, why, if you put an age limit, then it should be for everything. I, I just don't see that as parallel. I mean, your decision to let your child work It's not me McDonald's to take the decision. It affects you and your child at McDonald's. But I don't think that means you should be able to say that my child can work at McDonald's if I don't want my, my five-year-old to work at McDonald's. Well, so then you consider as property. Your child gets to vote. That affects not just you and your child. That affects me. So there is my else. next question. Do you consider a child as an object or as a person? I don't think, I don't personally have a clean answer to that. I sort of think because there's a huge range of things that people can do to their kids, positive and negative. And almost every parent does some of the positive and some of the negative, okay? despite the fact that most of them try to do mainly positive. But everybody makes lots of mistakes. So I'm sort of tempted in the direction of up to some age, let parents have control. And the question is really, where is that age? I, you know, I don't have a short answer. I don't have a good answer. It's a hard question. Because clearly there's some parents who do do a few goofy things, but I'm afraid that if we start intervening and telling parents they can or cannot do these things vis-a-vis -vis their children, we just no, open My point up a was just saying until we decide as a society, we decided 18 that children could not decide for themselves before that, it should stay as such for every part of their, grown, their growth until they are able beings. Before that we decide they were not, so be it. Otherwise, we have to change everything. If you, if you let them work, then let them vote. Let them drive. Not my problem. But driving driving will affect other people. I, the, the, we have a so, fundamental... So we're working. It does affect the economic society in its own. No, 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 not, yes, not they are workers. Not in the same way. Not, I, I, I'm sorry. I think, it's a I think it's a different question, but well, please. Yes, uh, thank you. My name is uh, Carl Siegfried. I'm a member of the Swedish parliament, and I tend to you know, view my job as resolving prisoners' dilemmas. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I jumped a little bit when you suggested that we shouldn't ban false advertisement. Uh, I would view it maybe as a part of the contract, at least, you know, implicitly. If I pay you something, then you deliver not just according to what's on this paper that we signed, but maybe also according to what you said in your TV ad. Okay, but that's a very different system, okay? Because one is an a priori restraint enforced by government going out there and going after whomever it wants. The other is there's a contract. It may be implicit as part of like common law. It may be explicitly on the thing that, that the package that you buy between the buyer and the seller that represents that what you're buying is what they say you're buying. So if you have that system, there's contracts between buyer and seller, and some sellers think they've been ripped off, then they sue. I have no objection to that whatsoever. False and misleading advertising law says that there's a whole agency, the Federal Trade Commission and the DOJ, that go around where they decide that they think there's been false and misleading advertising, even if no consumer has complained at all, doing it in a way that might be highly political because they go after industries that that particular administration doesn't like. So 
I think your example says there will be impediments, to, there will be restrictions, pushes against false misleading advertising coming from this more private, less government mechanism. We don't need a law explicitly banning it in order to get to that outcome. Okay, thanks. Hi, uh, um, thank you very much. Uh, that was a great chart you put up. Um, <laughs> There was a study by the Cato Institute of something very similar, and it took all the welfare spending and said if you just distributed that to everybody who's poor, you'd raise them all above the poverty line. I was oh, it's much, much, much more extreme than that. If you took all of the spending on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, you know, the standard, and you divided it amongst the lowest, the poorest 10% of the population, how much would it add up to per person? A lot. It's about $70,000 per person. It's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was wondering if there was an incentive uh, other than, you know, uh, it would be very nice if we could just give it to all of them. But if you did believe in redistribution of some kind, and, and I know I'm on a mic, but don't quote me on that. But if you did believe in redistribution of some kind, how would you do it efficiently if you I can? Think, I think the federal government should do zero redistribution. Okay? Well. If a state government were going to, could, could constrain itself to a very small negative income tax. It's a big if. It wouldn't be a big negative. I'm not saying I think it would be a positive, but it wouldn't be a big negative. Hey, the problem is, even with well-intentioned things like that, is they don't stay small. Okay, so we go from a very, very well-targeted, small, just helping those people who really, really have some you know, claim to needing help to the welfare state that we have now, of course, if we had zero, we would probably recreate the thing all over again. That's part of why I'm pessimistic. But um, yeah, I think the, the federal government is a disaster being involved in a redistribution game. State might not quite be quite so horrible. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, hi. You sort of alluded to this, uh, but I just wanted to ask you, as uh, somebody who's interested in economics and how to retort to this, is I always hear about the ever-increasing wage gap between the rich and poor. Um, how do you, what do you see as the reason for that? And what do you see as the resolution to that? So when people say that increasing inequality is a problem, I just say, why? I just, I don't accept that. Everybody wants to take that as a given. In fact, what you'd expect in a market economy is you, in which everything was being done efficiently, is you would expect to see increasing inequality, okay? And if it were really a market economy, those differences in income would reflect differences in skill and productivity and effort and entrepreneurship and all that stuff. And that would be all Wonderful. Um, I think a large part of the widening measured wage gap is that more and more compensation, especially for medium wage and low wage earners, is coming in the form of employer-provided health insurance premiums because healthcare is getting more expensive. So if you look at total compensation for a median worker compared to high-end compensation, you don't see nearly the same trend. Likewise, Bruce Meyer, economist at Northwestern, has measured the trend in consumption inequality, which is really what we care about much more than income inequality. We care about how much you get to consume, not how much just you. That takes account of the fact that there's tons of benefits people are getting from welfare to Medicaid. And he finds there's almost no trend in consumption inequality. So this widening gap is just not there if you look at the more appropriate aspect of the data. So that's how I. Right. Thanks. Slide. You had a chart that showed uh, that basically throughout human history, per capita income was so low, and then we had that massive explosion at the end. Can you help elaborate or tell us on how it can be that low for that long, and then also on massive, where that numbers come from? It's, it's not totally clear. I mean, first of all, it does coincide with the Industrial Revolution. Now, 
were there just fortuitously a bunch of inventions around, say, the end of the 18th century that then okay, interacted with free market capitalism and led to that huge boom in wealth? Or did the increased definition of property rights, increased emphasis on capitalism, reduce government interference, improve the incentive for people to want to innovate, improve the incentive for people to take those innovations, those new technologies, and use them for profitable things? The chicken and the egg thing is not at all trivial. But it's certainly true that on the whole, there was a lot less government, a lot more free markets, okay, starting somewhere around the time of that burst of activity. Okay, and so it's plausible that that played a significant role. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm from Turkey and in 2001, uh, we faced a big economic crisis and we believe that we saved our economy through intervention of government and some IMF help. And these days there's also a, a financial crisis in Europe and they are trying to solve their problems through some degree of government intervention and the intervention even at the EU level. So uh, what do you think about the current uh, economic slowdown in Europe and the go uh, government's position? So I, my assessment of U.S., Europe, all that stuff is that over the 90s and 2000s, we gradually convinced ourselves that we were a lot richer than we really were. It's measured by elevated housing prices, stock prices. We got optimistic, euphoric, whatever you want to call it. And we started consuming at a higher, higher rate. That's in the data. You can see consumption relative income. It's getting higher and higher. Savings is getting lower and lower. We loaded on more and more entitlements that we were going to promise ourselves in the future, you know, decades going forward. And then it became clear that it couldn't happen. And so people, there was panic first, but now there's realization that we either have to slash entitlements or raise taxes enormously, and that's the main thing that's slowing economic growth. Uh, hello. You said that um, you, you talked about uh, creeping regulations and uh, creeping government power and regulations, uh, but doesn't this apply to... Uh, every facet of the government, even those which we commonly deem that are um, necessary for the government, such as the preservation of law. So a Absolutely. All the bad things that governments can do, national defense and property rights enforcement and criminal justice, they all do that too. A criminal justice system okay, has drug laws. Okay? Our criminal justice system has all these stupid laws against money laundering. Okay? The military does a few good things, you know, defending the country against attack. It also does idiotic things like Iraq, idiotic things like having all these military bases in Europe and Japan and all over the place, crazy weapon systems that the military knows are not going to work and doesn't want. So all those things are a risk there too, absolutely. So I think a lot of libertarians would say not just all the other junk we were talking about, but the military should probably be half its current size. Right. Police departments. So, so how, how do we stop... Um, the what we might say is legitimate roles of government from creeping? I mean, oh, oh. I guess I gave the same answer I gave before. You have to convince, we have to convince more people to think the way we do. There are no institutional tricks. There are no balanced budget formulas. There are no clever things that are going to somehow force us to do the right thing. It's only if more people agree that smaller government would be better that the democracy will vote more consistently for smaller government across the board. Okay, thank you. How are you doing? Lance Aguila, uh, Cal State Long Beach. 
Uh, I was would imagine, as I would imagine, someone in your position is constantly in debates, and for the most part, you're probably preaching to the choir here. Right. So <laughs> I want to ask you, what topic or policy do you find the most success in opening either your students or your faculty's mind to libertarian point of views? Um, I think the greatest success, the extent that I've changed anybody's mind at all, was when I convinced people on either end of the spectrum, people who think that they're Republicans slash conservatives, or people who think that they're liberals, that maybe libertarianism isn't all bad. Okay, so I have a lot of students who take my libertarian class who come in just thinking they're Republicans. Why? Because they hate the craziness that the liberals endorse so much that it slightly blinds them to all the idiotic things the Republicans endorse. And I sort of push them to try to be consistent, to say, if you think big government is bad, why doesn't that apply to government interferences with marriages? Why doesn't that apply with government interference with drug use? Why doesn't that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you think that bigness and all these excesses that we were just talking about are bad, why doesn't that happen in the military as well as in Social Security and things like that? And then I'd say in the other direction, I've had people who came in and said, you know, I was a liberal when I came in. I was sure you were wrong about everything. I still think you're wrong, but you made a good point. Okay? And I, you know, that's sort of a moral victory. If I can get that much, okay, I feel like I've done something. As draws an analogy with my best friend, I always say, we get them to that point, and then they acknowledge that you're right. And it's just like, well, you have your point of views, and I have mine. <laughs> so it's just, okay, thank you. Good. So I guess we take these two more? Okay. Hi, uh, uh, hi again. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was a comment on false advertising, and you made a very libertarian point about how people can make rational choices in false advertising. They realize. Why then are you concerned about thought control? Um, because government changes the information. Government changes the data. Government frequently controls the data, like the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, collects a lot of the data, say, on drug use and how many drug overdoses are. So they have the power to make it very hard for anybody, a super rational person, to realize how bad the policies are because they're tilting the playing field. So yeah, if all the information were out there, and every, I mean, maybe I should say because I think people are somewhat behavioral, somewhat naive, somewhat swayed by easy to digest arguments and not always thinking through all the hard arguments. That's a good point. Yes. Hi, my name is Deepak. Um, I study MS Finance at UMass Boston. Um, you said government is trying to do the income redistribution to you know, get rid of inequality and have more equality. And in, in the process, they are creating, uh, you know, they are doing arbitrary redistribution of the wealth. Right. So on the one hand, they are convincing people that they are there to, they are convincing poor people that they are there to help them. And on the other hand, they are creating, you know, crony capitalists who will fund their election campaigns. So job is almost done for them in terms of getting votes and getting money for their election campaigns. So how, how to really stop this entire process? Again, by helping more people understand all the negative aspects of the process. I don't think there's any trick to getting. Can I ask them one question before you stop? Sure. It's a short question. I want somebody who's watched all of Lost to explain to me why the central figure is named John Locke, and when he adopts an alias later in the show, it's Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> That's a good libertarian question. <laughs> 
Okay, thank you very much.